Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 7th of uh, December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The historic vote in Dáil Éireann this week passing the termination of a pregnancy bill means the will of the people to repeal the Eighth Amendment may now be acted on and abortion services made available to women in January. That's assuming the bill passes in the Senate. While this is a formality to some degree, the debate could be intracted and delay the introduction of abortion services. A special sitting of the Senate is to be held on Monday in order to avoid such a scenario. And Dr Peter Boylan believes that this means when you allow for the Christmas break and the three-day cooling-off period, the first of the terminations could take place in this country in the second week of January. We were joined by Independence for Change TD for Dublin South Central, Joan Collins. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, this is something you've campaigned for for I don't know how many years, uh, but uh, do you believe uh, that it will be a reality for women in this country in the middle of January? That's the intention, and I hope that is the case. It's looking that way, and um, I think it will go through the channels um, fairly quickly, um, and hopefully, as Dr. P- Peter Boylan said. With the three-day cooling period, we will have the service available for women in the second week in January, which would be just really, really good for, for women from the point of view of not to travel and all the stress and strain and all that that goes with it. Okay, and I, I take it uh, that we're not quite there yet, uh, that uh, in between uh, the next month or so that some women will have to travel. Absolutely, yeah, until that legislation comes into place, that's signed off by the President, um, Women will have to continue to travel. Yeah. So, uh, what will happen in the second week of January? Well, the second week in January for women who who could be pregnant at the moment um, and they um, want to terminate that pregnancy, um, up to twelve weeks can actually go to their GP and hopefully their GP will serve them um, to get the abortion pill. Um, that would be the first thing and. Any woman who has serious harm to her health after the 12 weeks can access abortion um, in this country. And for women who have fatal fetal abnormalities, they'll be able to access 
um, abortion in this country on, from the 1st of January, hopefully. Okay, if the GP is willing to provide a, mm-hmm. an abortion service, uh, what's required of the GP? The GP would be required to um, see the woman, examine, um, and then the woman comes back within 72 hours uh, to um, obviously think about the situation and come back and then the doctor will provide her a prescription to get the abortion pill and that will be that, that's what will happen. What, what, um, what, what will he be examining the woman for? He'll be just checking to see, if, obviously, if she's pregnant, take a, um, a urine test and things like that, at what stage her pregnancy is at. That's under the 12 weeks, so that's essentially what that test would be. Right. Uh, and uh, if he's not certain, or is there any chance that he wouldn't be certain? Um, well, most women, when you do your urine test and do a pregnancy test, you can you have a night you have a fairly exact idea where mm. you are in your pregnancy. What so if he thinks it's borderline? If it's borderline, um, that's a, that's an issue. He will have to say that he, um, refer the woman to uh, you know heal the situation or go to a, another doctor. Um, but he. he he or she GP, why, will, why, not, will not give the abortion why, why, pill if they think it's over 12 weeks. Why, why would he have to do that? Well, the, if, if a woman wants to continue the pregnancy then, mm. well, then that's an issue. Um, no, but why, why would he have to do anything other than uh, prescribe the pills? Well, that's, that's where he's, once it's under 12 weeks. Mm. But if it's, a, if it's borderline and he's not completely certain, why, why would he have to do anything other than prescribe the pills? Well, I suppose or, it, or deny the pills. That it's over 12, 12 weeks. He has, a, he or she mm. will have an issue on it. Um, yeah, but but if it's borderline, he's not certain. Uh, he 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 could decide um, to prescribe the pills or not prescribe the pills. They could, yes, yeah. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing to say what the doctor should do. No, 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 not in that issue. Because mm. after twelve weeks, the only way you can access abortion if it's serious harm to the woman. Um, and and how how is he to ascertain if there's serious harm to the woman? Well, in that case, it would be two doctors um, the woman would have to visit um, to ascertain that. It's a, it's a different... But what test do they have to do? How do you mean, Michael, what test? But what I mean is there's no guidelines and there's a lot of concern about the haste that this legislation is being brought in under uh, because uh, we've uh, GPs, nurses and consultants now who are very concerned... There's GPs, nurses and consultants, some some of those professions have a um, conscientious objection to it, yeah. No, not always, and no. Then, no, no, Chris Fitzpatrick writing about it I in the Irish Times today very clearly says he does not have a conscientious objection mm-hmm. and that he will be happy to terminate pregnancies when he feels it's safe for women. But he feels that because of the lack of guidelines, it's unsafe. He writes, it is frightening. There is no other word to describe it. Well, I'm not a GP, <laughs> so from that point of view, I'm not um, okay with what they have to know and do from that point of view. I know talking to my own GP, he was saying he's happy to administer the um, the abortion pill. He, what he was saying, they just need training. They need to have proper um, sort of top-up on their training as to exactly how they process um, a, a, a woman through the... the, 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 how they, how they deal with the woman's mm. process um, and that, that to make sure that she's safe. And that's the, the crucial thing because mm. and that's where their care lies is with uh, the woman from the point of view of the patient. OK, but um, this is a leading obstetrician. I mean, I'm not a doctor either, Joan. And, mm. I, you know, and I, I, you know I, all, all I can do is read the opinion of somebody who's happy and willing 
to terminate pregnancies, uh, does not have a conscientious objection, uh, is a leading obstetrician and gynaecologist at the Coombe Hospital and writes in the Irish Times today, it is frightening, there is no other word to describe it, to consider that with less than a month to go, there are no agreed models of care, published clinical guidelines or updated Medical Council ethical guidance. No clarification mm. regarding feticide or failed medical termination presenting beyond 12 weeks. No substance, substance, substantive engagement with paediatricians in relation to life-limiting anomalies and no satisfactory responses to many other clinical concerns that have been highlighted time and time again, he writes. Well, certainly that's um, a serious uh, point to take on. Um, if he's making those points. But we have to remember, Michael, that there is abortion available in this country at the moment um, under the, the Act of, um, 2013 Act. Um, so there has been a facility there and a model there um, for that period of time. Mm. i to be very, very, very few amount of women, 26, I think, in the last the last year. Um, but, I mean, this is going broader and, you know, it's mm. it's not going to be straightforward. Um, it's going to have to be checked on um, and I think all GPs and all doctors and all paediatricians have to be trained. And that's what Peter Boylan and the medical profession um, is, is, have been asked to do, is to engage with their, with their profession and um, give the medical guidelines mm. as to how to... Um, deal with the, the legislation coming in. All right. Well, the president of uh, the Medical Council, Dr. Rita Doyle, has said that there won't be guidelines in time for the planned rollout of termination services uh, because they need time to work on the guidelines. And she says it's better to get the guidelines right rather than to rush them in in time for the introduction of uh, the new laws which will allow for abortions. Dr Fitzpatrick uh, is one of the consultants that is putting his name to a letter to the chairperson of the Institute of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists and they're calling for the implementation of the new laws to be deferred until the risks to patient safety have been dealt with. Well, um, what what can I really say on that, Michael? If if a whole... um, layer of of medical professionals are saying that they can't provide the medical council guidelines, and um, that has to be taken up by the minister. No, the um, medical council has said that they won't have guidelines. They won't have guidelines. Yes. You're saying that mm-hmm. there, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's um, according to Paul Cullen's article in the Irish Times today. Well, there's a lot of um, commentary on this, um, and, and all we all I can take as a as a um, lawmaker is take their advice, take what they're saying raise it with the minister. The minister, at the end of the day, um, this legislation will have to be done with, with linking in with people like Peter Boylan, mm. who is supposed to be setting up those guidelines, who's supposed to be um, preparing um, the medical profession to um, bring in this service in the new year. If there's major, major problems with it, Michael, that's going to have to be dealt with. I can't... Mm. It's hard to turn back the clock, though. and I imagine that's the point that the doctors are saying. If we're going to do this, let's do it safely and take our time to do it safely. And it should be done safely. And that's the whole the whole concept behind it, that women are safe. And I think that is a concern of GPs and the medical profession and it's a concern of lawmakers as well. OK, but is it... If it's rushed, is it safe? I mean, this is what Dr Fitzpatrick is is saying. He's described it as a frenzied attempt to meet a dangerously unrealistic deadline. Well, by all accounts, from talking and listening to the minister, he has been in contact with all the the, uh, groups 
that are represented by the medical profession and that he seems confident that this is able to go through and can go through on the 4th of January. Now, if there's major, major um, concerns by the medical profession on this, that has to be taken on board. Um, and one thing, it can't be brought in if it's not going to be safe for women. Um, and that's the, the, the crucial point here. And I, obviously, the minister's going to have to take that up from the point of view of when you... There's, there's, no, there's nothing in the legislation that says it has to be in on the 4th of January the intent is to have it in on the 1st of January um, so that women can access um, the service, the reproductive service that mm-hmm. we want to try and bring into this, co- that we want to bring into this country. Um, but we, we have to just keep an eye on what people are saying and find out from the, the, from the representatives of these professions where exactly we're at in relation to providing the service in a mm-hmm. safe way. If a, a woman listening to us uh, this morning uh, has recently discovered she's pregnant and doesn't want to go through with the pregnancy and uh, doesn't want to travel and thinks she'll wait until January to terminate the pregnancy, what would your advice be to her? Well, at the moment, you can get the abortion pill on the internet if anybody's concerned. Um, and people are doing that, and women have done it up to now. Um, and uh, I would say go to your GP and talk to your GP. Um, uh, if, if that's the case, forced. Because <laughs> um, I'm not a medical okay. professional. I but, can't but, but advise people. In um, January, uh, I mean, can you go, just go to any GP or do they opt in or opt out or how does that work? Or how do you know which the GP? at the moment is any GP. You can go to any GP and if a GP has a conscientious objection, he or she has to, under the medical council guidelines, refer you to another doctor. Is there any way of knowing that before you make an appointment? At this stage, not in the early stages, you wouldn't. Uh, obviously, as the as the um, service beds in, and right. um, you will know. I mean, I, I would know that your local doctor is not going to provide the service, so you know you have to go somewhere else. It's mm. going to be a help um, a health helpline, also, um, so that women can ring um, and find out where they can actually right. access it. Fam- family planning clinics would be servicing mm. the abortion pill, all that type of thing. So there'd be there, there'd be plenty of um, clinics and things like that that women can access it. Okay, but uh, you could end up going to your GP uh, to be told we don't do that sort of thing here. You could be, yeah. And that'd yeah. be a bit humiliating, wouldn't it? Uh, it would, um, and that, that's listen. The conscientious objection you can't leg- legalise for that, uh, legislate for that. Um, it's there. Um, the medical profession have had it in their medical guidelines for decades. It's not mm. going to be removed. Um, but they will have a duty of care to refer person on. Um, on how they can um, access okay. um, the abortion uh, pill. And, and uh, over time, it'll be quite clear who, who's not administering the, the abortion pill. Okay, if you want to avoid that possible humiliation and decide not to go to a GP, as you say, you could go to uh, one of uh, the planning uh, family planning service providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you do if you meet protesters outside? Walk by them. No one knows what you're going in for. You could be going in for your um, contraceptive pill. Oh, well, I know, but in, you know. I mean, we've, we've seen doctors walk out of those centres in America to be shot. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully that won't be the case here. Um, Michael, this is, a, this is a new service, and mm. it's quite emotional for some people. Um, but what we have to try and do is... But is it being rushed? I mean, we were promised exclusion zones. The minister says he'll bring that legislation forward in the new year. It's not ready yet. That's true, and there is concern about that. Obviously. And because because, um, because be it is such an emotional it subject, it's going to be well. all the more emotional if we see that sort of thing that you see on the television from America. Well, Michael, hopefully that won't be the case. Hopefully there won't be protests outside um, clinics. 
hopefully um, GPs will service women who need the care, the reproductive health care that's, uh, that's in law. Mm. Um, and that's, I, I can't foresee what's going to happen six, three months down the line or two months down the line. All we can hope is that the legislation is brought in and, as you say, it's safe for women to access the reproductive health um, uh, needs and uh, that if there is problems, that we have to take them on board and the Minister of Health will have to take them on board very, very seriously if sections of the medical profession are saying they're not prepared for it. Right. Uh, And if it's past the 12 weeks uh, deadline and uh, there is a a risk uh, to the health of the mother, uh, a termination will be possible in one of the maternity hospitals, is it? Yes, and it has to be serious risk. That's what it says in the legislation. Mm -hmm. Uh, What will that do to the existing pressure on those hospitals, do you think? It's an issue that I raised um, actually on the day of the referendum when I was doing an interview. Our our, our public service are under huge pressure Mm -hmm. as it is. Um, The minister is putting in uh, uh, monies and uh, what's needed scans and all that supposedly into these, uh, these hospitals so that they will be able to um, uh, provide abortion services for women. Um, and I would hope that, I mean, as I said, it's actually in place at the moment that women can have abortion in certain circumstances. It's very low numbers, but um, hopefully the hospital will be able to, to take, take on the extra, the extra work there. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment uh, and uh, undoubtedly uh, all will become clear in the coming weeks uh, because uh, the uh, introduction of the legislation looks set, uh, as you say, uh, to be in place uh, for the deadline of the 1st of January. And thank you indeed, as always, for joining us this morning. That's Independence for Change TD for Dublin South Central, Joan Collins. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, I hope we'll be forgiven for constitutional confusion on uh, the programme in the first hour of our programme today because we'll go from repealing uh, the Eighth Amendment, what was Article 43.3, to Article 41.2 and the role of women in the home in a few minutes' time. But before we do that, we'll go to Article 42a, uh, which you may remember voting on. It was called uh, the Children's Referendum. and inserted into the Constitution the line that the state recognises and affirms the natural and imprescriptible rights of all children and shall, as far as practical, practical by its laws, protect and vindicate those rights. Uh, but what does that mean or what effect has it had? Well, that's a, a subject that was uh, discussed yesterday at a, a meeting which was organised uh, by uh, the Children's Rights Alliance and uh, the Uh, Family Lawyers Association as well as uh, the Bar of Ireland. One of uh, the speakers at this was Ashley Mulligan, who's a barrister and joins us now. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, We were voting on children having equal rights to uh, adults in our constitution uh, when we did go out to vote. Uh, But what difference has it made? Because children are still abused in this country. Children still go to bed hungry. Children are are still bullied and uh, many of them are homeless uh, as we speak, some 4,000 children in this country and it's clear uh, that the state does not treat all of uh, the children of uh, this country equally or cherish them equally. Good morning, Michael. Thank you for having me. Uh, That's a very interesting starting point. You don't pull any punches, do you? (laughs) 
it's 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 the it's the very same question we were asking before the referendum. Uh, did, course, absolutely. How, what in what way is it going to be different or better? Mm. So there are two points that um, make it a little bit clearer. Before we had Article Forty Two A, the references to the children in the Constitution were only ever in the family. So. That which is predominantly a good thing because generally speaking, we all recognise that the family is where children thrive the, the most. So that wasn't an issue. But when issues arise between the conflict between the family and the areas that you've just called, you just mm. identified for things like poverty, for things like, um, in particular, uh, abuse or neglect or harm, the the point was we never saw children separate as a unit and with their own entitlements. So the purpose of forty two A was to take children out of the family and put them into their into their own space in the constitution and the value of that is that when we're now creating law we don't have a situation where we have to try and figure out how we do that constitutionally where we engage with children where there's harm in the family but because they have their own constitutional right because 42a puts them out on their own and separates them from their family. So, for example, one of the things that the Constitution allows for, which makes it different, is adoption. Mm. So, prior to the referendum, it was almost impossible to adopt a child until their very later years, 17 or 18, if they had been fostered. So, you have lots of of arrangements where children go into foster care very early on, but they can't be long-term, it couldn't be long-term adopted into the family unit. And Geoffrey Shannon, one of the uh, members of the Adoption Authority of Ireland, mm. uh, would have said that one of the things that he would have seen is a lot of late-term um, applications at 17 and a half because the criterion that was set by the Constitution was so high. Now, with the change in the referendum, it means that those children can be adopted into those families um, once they, the base threshold of a reasonable period of time has occurred of um, family abandonment. And after that, they can be adopted. Mm. So there's a really practical simple way that that made people's lives better but it's also a really simple way that made people's lives easier. Okay, and Geoffrey Shannon, uh, the government's uh, child, child rapporteur, uh, for that matter, uh, and somebody yes. uh, whose opinion uh, obviously holds uh, great weight. Great weight. Uh, yes, that's uh, absolutely. Is life in this country uh, better for children as a result of the referendum? I think that, that is... Um, almost too simple a question. I think it is looked at from a different standpoint, which gives us the potential for life to be better for children. One of the things, as I said, the adoption is a really simple example, but the same can be said for private family law, because there are terrible things that happen to tiny children in this country. And that, and that, that is a reality, and I'm not trying mm. to get away from that. But the majority of children in this country face very normal struggles, like uh, separation, and divorce and adoption is a very normal part of, of family life in Ireland. And in, you've seen the example of adoption, but also in private family life where there are disputes, there was no previous constitutional right to have a child's views be heard in areas of guardianship, custody or access. And the, now, because it is constitutionally protected, the views of the child have to be heard in all of these scenarios. And again, it fundamentally changes the starting point how we answer questions about children. It Uh, used to be what do the parents think and then what do the children think, whereas now the starting point is where are the children in this? 
and it fundamentally changes the outcomes for these children. And, and uh, since its insertion in uh, the Constitution, Article 42A has been used in some legal argument. Uh, it was used very recently when a newborn baby was removed yes. from a, a woman in a maternity hospital and the claim was uh, that it was a breach of the child's rights. Yes, they used Article 42A to ground their application. That was a very difficult case because, and I've experienced this in practice myself, Mm -hmm. is emergency care order for brand new children. And it has to be said, it is an extraordinarily difficult thing for families and and for the social work department to manage. Because as you can imagine, no matter what has happened in the history of a case, a mother who has just given birth to a child is fundamentally at her most vulnerable. And possibly also at her most heightened. And she's there and she's, all she wants to do is protect her child. But the Child and Family Agency have genuine concerns about how to manage the removal of that child from that parent. And I think in that case, it was clear that the court felt that it w- there was not a proportionate engagement with, with the parent. But ultimately, he also made and it, um, it also allowed for an interim care order to be made, which was the second step in that in that application so the, he did recognize that the social work department were acting on a, a recognized harm they just said pursuant to article 42a that it, it really had to be proportionate and very carefully done and it needed to be managed and it, it had to be very very well regulated and that's something that definitely as someone who practices mm-hmm. in this area really re- is very grateful for because if there was a formalized process between again the hse and garda Siakona, and the social workers where this there is a way that they do this and it's uniform and it works and it's child-centred, but that would be great for everyone because we all need that. Because sometimes mm. it, it's done very well and sometimes it isn't done as well and that's where the difficulty arises. So if we get, re- if we get regulation on this particular process, then I think it would be a great outcome for... Uh, and use of Article 42A. As I mentioned a moment ago, we were talking about the removal of Article 43.3, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, and Article 42A, the children's rights referendum and how that changed the Constitution, has become part of uh, the argument on abortion. And the High Court found that because of Article 42A, that the unborn was a child. But that was overturned then by the Supreme the Court. Supreme Court, yes, that's right. Um, so that was, a, again, a, a very interesting case where they said that if they drew the distinction between a fetus and a child, and they, it was the High Court that felt that it had to be all children and they had to be, have the most broad interpretation. But the Supreme Court found in a majority decision that if they meant... Um, they would have said if, just, if, they were, if it was any broader it would have been worded in a different way and that it had to be children who were born and that was the test so in other words all of these rights were triggered under Article 42A upon birth not upon conception not upon a period of gestation they said you had to be born and that was when everything started and uh, do, do, do think the points I put to you at the outset about children going to bed hungry or uh, in hotels, as the case may be, uh, were uh, 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 symptomatic, if you like, of unrealistic expectations? Um, No, I don't think so. I think there is room for the Constitution and Article 42A to really influence both of those things. Um, I think it influences how we engage with children on a policy level. 
Um, and that's obviously something that the Children's Rights Alliance do an awful lot of advocacy for in terms of the child homelessness. Um, they do tremendous work on that. And I think from the policy point of view, you're talking about lobbying and, and advocating government um, for real substantive change and you use the constitutional right to do that. So I think mm. in time we will get there. But I do accept that it hasn't solved all the problems immediately. But unfortunately, if we knew how to solve all the problems immediately, I think we would have done it by now. It's a work in progress. There's no doubt about that. But we're, we're, work, we're working and there is progress. Okay, well, you uh, joined that seminar on behalf of the Bar of Ireland uh, yesterday to uh, assess uh, uh, the uh, changes uh, that have resulted from the referendum, uh, along with the Family Lawyers Association and uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning, Ashley. I must say, uh, before you go, I try not to pull my punches, uh, but I've never been put in my place so embarrassingly effectively as I was this morning and thank you very much indeed for doing that. <laughs> thank you so much Michael, an absolute pleasure. <laughs> I'm sure. Ashley Mulligan, barrister and speaker at uh, that uh, children's referendum seminar. Michael Reed on LMFM. It really is a case of if it's not one constitutional conundrum, it's another on the programme uh, this morning from Article 43.3 to Article 42A and now to Article 41.2, which has been the subject of a discussion at uh, the Joint Committee on Justice and Equality. Its chairperson is Sinn Féin TD, Quivin O'Quailon, who joins us now. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, this is the article in the Constitution that refers to the role of women in the home. And if you don't mind, I think I'll actually read the wording because I think no matter how many times you hear it, it sounds remarkable. And the Constitution says that uh, the state recognises in particular that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. The state shall therefore endeavour to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home. Now, the proposal is uh, to remove uh, the reference to a woman's life in the home from the Constitution, uh, but it is a complicated uh, discussion uh, and uh, the committee uh, has been asked to make a recommendation. Instead of doing that, you've made two recommendations. Perhaps uh, you tell us what they are and why there's two. Well, it's an either-or situation, Michael. I mean, as you've just read out, it hardly requires me to say that the wording of Article 41.2 is sexist, anachronistic, and no longer appropriate to the Ireland of today, if indeed, question mark, it ever was. So the Committee on Justice and Equality were unanimous that the wording as currently presenting in the Constitution is wholly unsuitable and needs to be changed. Now, there was a body of opinion that reflected the government view that it should simply be deleted. However, there was a significant majority view across the Justice and Equality Committee after very detailed pre-legislative scrutiny that it should be replaced by a new wording and that's what we're offering in terms of options A and B. Option A uh, proposes that um, an alternative wording uh, would be put before the people that would be gender neutral and that acknowledges the support that home and family life gives to society. Uh, Option B, however, goes further and encourages government to engage in a public uh, conversation, a public consultation around the different possibilities in terms of reflecting the role of carers 
in society today and urging the government to consider even a, the possibility of including a concrete socio-economic rights in that wording. So we had a variety of views across the committee reflective of the opinions presented and that had existed pre-engagement. And we're saying to government, yes, Article 41.2 has to change. We do not, as a committee, believe that it should be deleted simpliciter, right. that it should be replaced by one or other of the options offered in the report that we launched yesterday. OK, and when you say carers, uh, you mean male and female carers, Absolutely. people Absolutely. who are caring for other people in the home, uh, not uh, just women and certainly not just mothers. No, indeed. Carers, I mean, today... Caring is provided by a whole raft of people in different circumstances. The function that they perform, the service that they provide is absolutely massive. There's no other word to describe it. And, you know, for a whole variety of motivations, primarily out of natural love and affection, and the function that they perform, the service that they provide, is a huge uh, underscoring of state responsibility because they are ultimately uh, providing a service and support that the state otherwise would have to provide. So there needs Mm. to be a, a recognition, and whether that be merely a symbolic recognition, an acknowledgement, or that it would go further and allow for socio-economic rights to be included that would allow for uh, people to uh, pursue uh, their entitlements to the courts if necessary. The expectation was that we would have voted on uh, removing this article from the Constitution in line with the presidential election and uh, the referendum on blasphemy. That didn't happen because of some of the concerns raised. It has to be said by groups like the National Women's Council who were concerned at just deleting the reference to women and not replacing it with something uh, such as carers uh, and that is uh, the ongoing conversation I I think there's some speculation that there may be a poll on this in line with uh, the local and European elections in May uh, or it may be delayed Uh, what what, what do you feel is the uh, appropriate action? Well I think the appropriate action is that we get it right and uh, I think time frames we would certainly like to see it changed in 2019 Um, I, I think that we have to recall the fact that government were very strongly of the view that it should just simply be deleted and that no further consideration to a reflection of the significant role of carers uh, would enter into the consideration. Mm. Uh, The committee, in its wisdom, decided that pre-legislative scrutiny was necessary and as you've indicated, you know, we had a a significant body of opinion who came before us, including the National Women's Council that you referenced and they were represented at yesterday's launch in Leinster House. We also had the Economic and Social Research Institute, Family Carers Ireland, the Irish Country Women's Association and the Stay-at-Home Parents Association as well as some very eminent uh, academics and former justices, Dr Maura Cahillan of the University of Limerick and Miss Justice Catherine McGinn Now, they all represented a variety of views in relation to all of this, but absolutely and without exception, all accepting that 41.2, as it presently presents, is wholly and absolutely unacceptable. Mm. So we are encouraging government to consider either options A or B, not to proceed with just the simple Mm. deletion. And we do believe, uh, certainly a majority would believe in the committee, that a a consideration should be given, a serious consideration should be given to a public engagement. 
And uh, I do believe that that ultimately will help inform the very best decision, uh, one that will be fit for purpose today and into the future. Uh, and there's we need. the risk, I, I take it, of unintended consequences, well-intentioned uh, measures with unintended consequences to recognise uh, the role of carers in the Constitution in the way that women are, are, are recognised in the Constitution. But I, I don't recall any case of a, a woman suing the state uh, because uh, she felt forced to work. No, indeed, that that never happened. And uh, it was interesting that uh, the significant number of those who were presented were indeed women. Uh, and uh, they would all have said that uh, drawing a breath and taking a little time, it hasn't uh, really impacted in any serious way on women and their lives over the time of its uh, presence in the Constitution since 1937. So, you know, they're quite happy to wait another number of months in order that the right decision is reached and one that ultimately, if put before the people, will get the greatest possible endorsement in a referendum. All right, well, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's Quibun O'Quailon, who's a Sinn Féin TD for Cavan Monaghan and uh, the chair of uh, the Joint Committee on Justice and Equality. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and thanks to everybody for getting in touch today. May phoned in to say that she voted in favour of abortion, but listening to your discussion and reading the papers, she is concerned that there is a bit of a rush to bring this in. She says if GPs who are not objecting to abortions per say but are saying that more time is needed to ensure the safety of women then they should be listened to. Okay well the law hasn't been introduced yet Uh, I'm sure there's a a lot of concerns as we've been hearing Uh, I'm sure a lot of those concerns are being listened to uh, and hopefully everybody will be safe uh, when the law is introduced whether that's on the 1st of January or if it's too late. Gronje says that this abortion debate has been very divisive and divisive even and she feels it's imperative that now that it's going to come through uh, the Iraqis, that it must be done right. And she feels that while the sooner abortion is available in Ireland, the better for those who need it, there should be proper training and guidelines in place so that those involved in carrying out abortions and assisting women know exactly what they are doing and that everybody knows where they stand. Okay. Uh, another listener says, Jack text in to say, I think it's very sad at this time of year when we celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus. We are going to pass a law to kill babies. Not once in Joan Collins's talk did she mention a baby. Yeah, well, she doesn't believe that that's uh, the case. She believes that it's uh, a termination of uh, a pregnancy and uh, that the fetus has uh, not become uh, a child uh, as yet, uh, which uh, by all accounts was uh, the decision of the Supreme Court as well. Helen phoned in and she claims that when we voted for the abortion we were told lies, thought it was under certain circumstances like rape or abnormality, abnormalities oh, that you could have well, an abortion. Maybe we should have listened a little bit closer because that wasn't what we were told. Is it open to everyone, she's mm, wondering? Yes, it is, yes. And that's and what feels, we were told. And feels that that's wrong. 
Mm. And uh, it shouldn't be allowed to someone who just doesn't want Mm. to have a baby. Well, I think most people who voted knew what they were voting for because they did listen uh, and they knew that it was uh, available. Unrestricted access to abortion, I think, was uh, the phrase that everybody became very familiar with up to 12 weeks. Theresa poses the question, Michael, just thinking, God forbid, a tragedy occurs during an abortion, wondering who would be held responsible, the Minister for Health or the doctor. It's a puzzle, say, mm. tr- says Theresa. Well, I don't understand the question. That if something happened mm. during something, yeah. a tragedy, mm. who but, would be responsible well, for it? I don't know. I, I, don't, I still don't understand the question. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I understand what you're saying. I can hear the words, uh, but what that actually means uh, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, an open-ended thing. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure that it's, it's, it's too simple a question or too complicated a question to answer simply. Yes, mm. because obviously mm. various circumstances would have to be considered in well, something I, like that. I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what the scenario is. It's yes. a, a, a very vague hypothetical question. Yes. Um, Teresa also just wanted to mention that she has been listening intently to the various discussions and in, in the Dáil and indeed on uh, the broadcast medium over the past mm. couple of days. And she feels that should more time, that more time should be given to doctors and pharmacists, she says, to know what is really going on with the abortion I- issue. I can understand they would be upset if they made a mistake. They are the ones answerable for it. I feel that they need more information mm. on it. More info well, uh, and yeah. more help and I, I to think them. that's probably the point uh, and it's the point that the doctors are making that there needs to be guidelines in place and just going back to the last call and I, I don't mean to be smart I uh, but I mean it, 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 I, I really not It's that time of the year Your vacation is coming up You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. sure what to say about that because, you know, if the caller was asking if a woman died during an abortion, Mm. well, I mean, of course that can happen. I mean, you can die having your appendix out. You can die as a result of a reaction to uh, general anaesthetic and uh, they're the uh, risks uh, that uh, medical procedures always carry Uh, and that's why you're quite often asked to sign an indemnity form and that type of thing and uh, I think uh, the answer to the question, if we can revisit that, is well, the the first thing that will be asked is where the guidelines adhere to 
too. Mm. Uh, and that comes back to the guidelines and the need for yes. guidelines to be in place. Yes. And there does seem to be a bit of concern mm. just from our listeners about those guidelines. Mm. Um, we also had Jim phoned in who said that he did vote no to abortion, but now that it is coming into effect in Ireland, he believes that we should make sure that all the dots and the T's are crossed. Mm. He okay. says, yeah, yeah. you know, mm. so that's his thoughts on it. We also had an email from Tony on uh, the same topic. And Tony's saying over the past few days, the, where the abortion matters uh, have been discussed, it's noticeable how your pro-abortion speakers like to sanitise the matter by referring to women's health care. But I would suggest there's not much health care for the baby in this whole matter. The most telling discussion was when the nurse who does not want to participate described the dismemberment of a recognisable child in the process of late-term abortion. Perhaps if more discussion and indeed televised coverage of such an act had had to take place during the referendum campaign, we would not have had the result we did. But it was obvious Mr Harris and other Yes campaigners did not want the gory details to be prominent in the discussion and confined only to crisis pregnancies as if they were to be the only ones affected, says Tony. Mm -hmm. So thanks for that. So we'll go back, if I can, uh, Michael, to a topic that we were speaking about yesterday and that was in relation to the disabled parking bays. Ray says, you need to travel to the outer villages of Drogheda to see how much disabled spaces are ignored by drivers and no fines are issued. Another texter, Shane, I'm not sure how this will go down, but Shane says, Shane says, I have to be honest, much as it annoys me to see people parking in disabled parking bays, I do think a blind eye should be turned for delivery drivers. They're an essential part of any town and are neglected for uh, usable loading space. Sometimes they don't have anywhere to park. That's oh, the point that Shane really? is making. OK, I'd have thought that there was parking bays for uh, well, most you, shops. You see them, mm, loading bays yeah, everywhere yeah, yeah. because right. we can't park in them. Yeah, That's well, how I know I, they're I, everywhere. Yeah, I, I imagine he's not making it up. I just can't think of uh, anywhere that would be without them. Uh, let's talk about uh, another pertinent issue and most topical issue and uh, the dreaded B word again. Uh, I don't know if you were listening to us yesterday, but uh, I got into a, a little bit of uh, trouble in uh, the studio because uh, Ross has been out recording these pieces with people and uh, just to buy some time I called Ross Mr. Rossley he liked it he, he, he was very he was very happy about that uh, so let's find out what Mr. Rossley has been doing today with the British Parliament's vote on Theresa May's Brexit deal coming up next Tuesday I took to the streets of Drogheda asking people's thoughts on Brexit and if it worried them um, not particularly no not particularly I don't know. I think Theresa May might get booted out. Mm. Um, and I don't know. Will it go back to the country? I don't know. Is that possible? I think, you know, they realise they've made a mistake at this stage. Kind of fed up with it. Mm. They're talking and talking, but there's nothing happening yet. Every speculating, but there's nothing coming out. I think it's been into this with the eyes closed more than that, more than that else. Mm. So it's all talk at the moment. It'll be all settled one way or the other. How long like a piece of elastic along with a stretch I'm not worried about any you know no I think it's all a big pile of blue over nothing 
I, I'm, not, I'm not particularly worried here in uh, Drogheda as such. I think we're sufficiently far away from the border that it won't have a major adverse effect on Drogheda. But uh, I think for businesses in the north, I would say they'd be very concerned if they don't strike a deal. It would be disastrous for Northern Ireland. And I think obviously Ireland will be probably second in the list to suffer, whereas the UK will be third in the list to suffer. And they just haven't the foresight to uh, maybe see for themselves that the impact they'll have on other communities apart from their own. I think it'll have a terrible impact, but I definitely don't think it'll go through. I think it's dead. I think Theresa May is finished and I don't know what's going to happen after that. If they leave us with the border, we'll be grand. If they vote it down on Tuesday, uh, the, the pound sterling will drop, the stock exchange will go down and then they'll, they'll realise then what actually that, what's happening. The English people don't realise what's happening. Not a clue do they have because they were sold a pup. Basically they were sold a pup they were sold on a bus for 350 million a week, you know. You don't hear much from Boris Johnson now or uh, Rhys Mogg now. You don't hear nothing from them, you know. So to, to have their back to the wall, Theresa May has surprised me as being as strong as she, as she is, you know. And I hope that she wins the vote on Tuesday. I really do because uh, if they just walk away, which they're saying that to get another deal, they won't get another deal. That's the deal. You know, and everybody has said that in Europe. They're fed up with it. And they won't get another deal, so they walk away. It's up to them now to get out of the hole that dug themselves into. Uh, personally, no, but yes for my uh, children. Uh, one, I'm fed up of it. <laughs> Am I worried? Yeah, sure. Every, everyone, because nobody knows what's going to happen. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry they're leaving. I wish they weren't. I think it'll have a negative effect on Ireland. Ah, well, I think it'll have a negative effect on everybody, you know. Uh, the whole idea of what the, the union was to keep people together so we wouldn't have another world war. We had two in Europe already, so we don't want any more of that. But, yeah, it's unfortunate. It's hard to know what's going to happen, though. I don't think anyone knows right now. All right, and uh, um, uh, sorry to hear that nobody in Drada had a, a crystal ball, but we do thank everybody for sharing their thoughts with Mr. Ross Leahy for us. Now, that's... Uh, You're enjoying go- that, Michael. Oh, no, it's not <laughs> me who's enjoying it. It's Ross or Mr. Ross Leahy who's enjoying it. Now, let's uh, go back uh, to your thoughts, Anne-Marie. What else have you got? Michael, we are going to be covering um, this proposal to change the name of Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drada just after the break. And we have a poll running on social media on on the LMFM Twitter if anybody wants to have their say there. We've also been getting lots of people commenting on our various social media platforms. If I can just go through a couple. Hugh got in touch to say this is getting ridiculous. Are we that fickle? Our identity is slowly being diluted. Our Lady of Lords Hospital was set up by Mother Mary Martin. There was no objections to this lady when she was driving the concept of the hospital. And there is a lot more in today's society to be offended by. So please get a grip. We are a nationality and we are disappearing. All our beliefs and traditions and now structures are being questioned. Time to cop on. Shane says it's a nonsense idea to begin with. I'd argue it's a large part of Drogheda's heritage. Keep the name, says Tony. Councillor may viewer such a load of nonsense. It would serve the HSE management better to sort as recruitment of staff, treatment of patients, car parking charges, waiting lists, etc., etc. 
Uh, Mandy says, as an atheist, I think this is ridiculous. There is no need to change the name of any existing hospitals. If any new hospitals are built, they should not be given a religious name. No money should be wasted on this pointless exercise. We need money spent on increased capacity in all public hospitals, more doctors, more nurses and better access to health care, not this nonsense. Mary via Twitter, leave the name as it is. This should not be allowed to happen. A change in the hospital's name. It shouldn't happen. So lots coming in. But the poll is interesting so far, Michael. We have had 138 votes, 58% to keep the existing name and then 12%, 16% and 14% on the various other uh, proposals. So as I said, we will be discussing that later. Okay, thanks for that, Marie, and uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1857 Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, uh, management of uh, the hospital in uh, Drogheda are to change uh, the name from Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital to one of three options uh, that they've put to staff. Let's hear about this with Martin Walsh. Martin is uh, the supplies manager at the Louth County, but he's also a trade union official and chairperson of uh, the National Health Division of FORSA. Martin, good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, you had uh, a letter from the general manager of our Lady of Lords Hospital and the Louth County and she's uh, outlined three potential names uh, that may replace the existing name. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, yesterday morning, uh, staff within the HSE were notified by email that was sent out to all staff of a a change of name. I won't say a proposal, but mm. it was a, it was more of it. We are changing the name uh, of the hospital, and we were asked to pick from the three choices that was on offer: University Hospital, Drogheda, Drogheda Regional Hospital, or Drogheda General Hospital. And the response is expected by close of business Friday the fifteenth of December. Um, as you say there, rightly, Michael, I, I come from a trade union background. I also work within the HSC. Mm. Um, and one of the issues that, that struck me instantly was, I'm, I'm also a Drogheda man, I'm born and raised in Drogheda, um, and we all know, anybody that's from Drogheda, or even in the surrounding areas, that Our Lady of Lords Hospital is a significant institution, if you like. It's, it's, it's known the length and breadth of Loudmead, Cabin and Monaghan uh, all around the place as a fantastic hospital, provides a fabulous service, and it is the go-to place when you have a problem. And it's recognised, as I say, by its name. Um, the suggestion that we need to change it to another name uh, to, you know, d- will, it, will it improve services and things like that? I don't think so. My biggest concern, and one of my concerns, is that this is a public hospital. Yes, it's funded by the HSE, but it's been in existence. The Medical Missionary of Mary's has been in existence in Drogheda for over 70 years, and the hospital has been in existence for over 57 years or more that there's been no public consultation on this. This this hasn't gone to the people of Drogheda to have a discussion, to have a choice, to have an input on. Um, it's been short notice, short wind, and I think that's grievously unfair to the people of Drogheda, um, particularly people that, that use the services of the hospital on a daily basis, you know. Which people? Uh, the people of Drogheda. I mean, it does, you, you look at the service that the hospital provides from... No, but do, do, do you mean that this should be decide, decided by a majority few or... All of the well, people. I, I would be, I would be kind of leaning towards that. You know, it's a majority view of the people. If the people of the town determine that there needs to be a change, then absolutely, we, I would endorse and support that completely wholeheartedly. But is that reflective of uh, the diversity of uh, the population and uh, the people uh, who avail of uh, the hospital services? 
I think it would be, yeah. I think when you look at the bigger picture of, of the demographics of you must remember that Our Lady of Lords Hospital doesn't just mm. uh, draw that. It, it's, it's the major trauma hospital north of Dublin. Yes, it but it, do, it doesn't just serve back. Catholics. No, no, but it, no, but that's absolutely no, and that's the whole point. But it's mm. not a. This isn't about a religion. This isn't about a faith decision. But it is about remember. a religion. It's a name that was put on a hospital by the nuns, the medical missions. Yeah. Yeah, but Michael, you must remember, yeah. since 1997, the North Eastern Health Board have run that hospital. And they have run it without the Catholic ethos. They've run it as, as a hospital, and it has been run like that. Yes, and is it, is, it not, is it not time to uh, get rid of the shackles of the past? No, I don't think so. I think, you, well, well it's, it, it, that's it. I don't necessarily agree with what you're saying there. What I'm saying to you is, is that... A Lady of Lords Hospital has to be recognised for what it is and what it, and what it has done for the town of Drogheda and the surrounding areas. And that changing the name is not going to change anything. I mean, there is, there, as a result of the things that have gone on in the, in the Lords Hospital over the last couple of years, there is phenomenal practices, safeguards and practices in there for both patients and staff alike. So they've learned from the hard lessons over the year and they've put policies and guidelines in there to ensure that nothing like that ever happens again. I would say that we were probably one of the highest standard hospitals in terms of operating uh, within within the 26 counties. Possibly, possibly now since it's been run by the state, uh, but uh, there are certainly questions going back to the time that it was run by the medical missionaries. Potentially, possibly, yeah. No, 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 no definitely. Yeah, no, well, I can't argue with that, but yeah. what, what I'm saying to you the, the, is... The, that, med, the, the medical missionaries uh, who were aware of the complaints about Dr. Michael Neary, for example, and other consultants, uh, uh, and some of those complaints are ongoing. Yeah, but they are being dealt with, thankfully, and, and but as, as I say to you, as a step forward from that, we've been able to put guidelines and practices in place. The medical missionaries who put a Catholic ethos into a hospital where it's believed by some, at least, that uh, women uh, underwent hysterectomies unnecessarily. Absolutely, I can't dispute that. That, and as you say, that Un- the under past. the name of Our Lady, Our Holy Lady uh, 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 of Lourdes. But that hasn't been the case, Michael, for since nineteen ninety-seven, since it was taken over by the by the Northeastern Health Board and now the HSC. There is practices and guidelines in there now to protect both patients and staff alike. That the likes of that can never happen again, should never, and will never happen again. And yes, you're absolutely right that what has happened in the past has to be addressed and has to be resolved. I don't think changing the name is going to change that. I don't think that that makes All the right. argument any different. Stay you know? with us, Martin. Labour Party sure, Senator absolutely. Jed Nash is with us as well because he also wants to hold on to the Catholic ethos or at least the ethos of uh, the name uh, that uh, stems from Catholicism. Um, well, that's an inaccurate depiction, Michael, of the view I have. Um, when I was first contacted with this this morning, I thought it was a bizarre um, decision. Um, and that's what it appears to me, a decision taken unilaterally uh, by senior management in Our Lady of Lords Hospital who have uh, given staff, as Martin correctly pointed out, three mm-hmm. options um, and to respond by uh, the end of next week as to what the new name uh, of the hospital will be. Remember, the general manager said it is her intention. So this appears to me to be a fait accompli, but as far as I'm concerned, it isn't because um, the people have been in touch with me, staff in the hospital and people across the community in Drogheda and indeed elsewhere across the northeast, <clears throat> have expressed to me in the clearest terms that they would like to see um, the name of Related Lords Hospital uh, retained. Now, Michael, you know, when I've been coming onto this programme for a long number of years, mm-hmm. I've been in the vanguard uh, of uh, trying to separate church and state in this country. I don't believe that the church or any religious order uh, of any confessional description has any function or any role in the bedroom, in but the it's classroom, a, a or, or to or the in, medical missionaries. In, in, in the, I, I think 
if 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 we were starting again on building a new hospital, as we are, for example, with a new National Children's Hospital, there isn't going to be any religious order attached to that, or any religious significance, or indeed any religious figure uh, will be you know depicted in the title. Who, who of, is for Our example, Lady of Lourdes? The, the Our Lady of Lourdes uh, was a name that who was is selected. There? But who was, is Our Lady of Lourdes? What does it mean? Uh, it, it, it was a name that was selected. What does it mean? It was a name. It's the Mother of Christ, isn't it? Finish. It's the Mother of Christ. Yes. Yeah. And remember, the medical missionaries totally of Mary and, and the people of Drogheda. Um, built this hospital back in the 1950s and there is an identity I think that goes beyond Mm. the ethos of the hospital. It is an institution uh, in this area, in this town and it's it's an an institution that the people of the town, the people of the area are very very proud of. Mm. Um, It hasn't had a Roman Catholic ethos thankfully since the medical missionaries Mary transferred ownership to. It has a a name that has Roman Catholic um, connotations, Mm. there's absolutely no doubt about that. But as I said earlier, if we were starting again I would not favour um, uh, de- de- describing. Why, why does a any- Muslim or a Jew have to go to the Mother of Christ Hospital? Um, well, you will find. I mean, I was looking at this yesterday. For example, I mean, one of the key hospitals in London is Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital. Um, that hospital was named after St Thomas mm. uh, Becket, uh, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, a very historical figure uh, in British um, theological and religious history uh, and uh, British history in general. They've retained that name uh, under the National Health Service. Uh, that hospital would have been transferred to the National Health Service when it was formed by Labour government back in 1945. Mm. And that name doesn't offend anybody. It doesn't offend me. I'm not a practising Roman Catholic. Um, I don't want to assume that you are or you aren't, Michael. But there are many people who are baptised as Roman Catholics. And uh, if I was accused of being a good Roman Catholic, I think I'd be accused in the wrong. Um, The name doesn't offend me. And I don't believe that it offends anybody. Uh, This kind of historical revisionism, though, does concern me. Uh, I mean... Uh, these, uh, there's no urgency to change this name. There's no demand. Um, and I don't believe, in fact, uh, that legally the uh, general manager for Lady Lord's Hospital or mm. any manager in the health service has any authority, do, do, in fact, in law to decide to change the a, hospital, a, 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 hospital's a, name. Do you, do you think a, a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jew would be more comfortable being called love or pet than having to attend the Mother of Christ Hospital? I'm not sure what you're driving at. That's this new protocol that the HSE have brought in for staff to stop referring to people as love or pet or these... Okay, well, it's, it's well, it's it's a case it's a case of it's a case of treating everybody uh, with respect. Um, I don't. I I, th- I think this is uh, a, a, in a way, um, you know, a bizarre kind of, you know, the, the cha- changing the, 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 the deciding where they go. They go to the hospital That's and right. the Lady of Lords mm. Hospital does not operate under Catholic ethos. It operates under a healthcare ethos. It looks after every man, woman and child. It's patient-forced and has been patient-forced for an awful Do you not think it's inevitable, though, that somebody will take issue with it? Um, Potentially, it has. But look, let me give you an example. Or or, or not take issue with it. If I go on holidays to New York City Mm. and I'm involved in an accident, there's probably a good chance that I'll end up in a hospital that has a Jewish background. But I don't judge the people by their state. I judge the people by their actions. So mm. if I need my leg fixed, I get my leg fixed. I don't. It does not come into it. The but state there, yeah, of and there hasn't been a Roman Catholic ethos attached to it. And, and come here, both, both of you now for a second. Uh, I'm not sure how many people will tell you they were in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. I think most people will say, I was in the Lourdes. Uh, would that be an appropriate name? Well, that's like living in Drada. You come from the far side or the south side. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's just mm. a local term. But I think what we're, we're taking our eye off the ball here. I mean, the, the, a, my, my point is, is, there's a couple of points here. 
is that the, there has been no public consultation around this. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the people of Drogheda, based on the history that it's had, are entitled to have a view and an opinion on this. And the other thing, Mike, that we're missing mm-hmm. here is the cost and implications of something like this. It's not as simple as a pen signature on a piece of paper. We are talking, and I'm being conservative mm-hmm. when I say this, we are talking in the tens of tens of thousands of euros. Oh, you're being very I, conservative. You're, be, you're being very, yeah, I'm being very, very conservative. conservative. And I heard somebody gave me a very good point this morning. He says, if you change the name of the hospital, you have to change all the road signage down around the place. So it has a wider implication. I'd say you're running into millions in actual fact. Uh, Quite potentially, absolutely. And we have a crisis in the health service where we have people waiting on trolleys. And this is not a reflection of the staff. Let's be very, very clear about this. The staff of Our Lady of Lords Hospital give a a, a first-class service. They have a state-of-the-art uh, maternity unit with a mm. special care babies unit. They have a phenomenal ICU ICU unit with some brilliant staff. They have staff that go above and beyond the call of duty. Okay, they but the gen- general manager has said it's going to be called University Hospital Drogheda or it'll be called Drogheda Regional Hospital or it'll be called Drogheda General Hospital. Uh, you have to pick one of the three by Friday of next week. So what next, Martin? Well, look, the first thing is, as I say, that this needs to go... I would be of the view that this needs to be brought to the people of Drogheda to have a decision. OK, but uh, how are you going to communicate that to the hospital? That to the hospital, I think the hospital will be very well aware of this conversation on the radio this morning. But I'm speaking to the people on the ground in the hospital in Our Lady of Lord's okay. Hospital, and the staff are very, very unhappy with this. We have people that have worked there all, and mm. they do not see the necessity for the change. Okay. Bearing in mind that the cost implications, the, the millions potentially that this mm. could cost, could go significant way to help reducing. Bed shortages, okay. staff shortages, pay shortages. I'm over time, Martin. Just, just, just very Sorry. briefly, uh, very final word, Jedna. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Martin. I mean, there, there's a wider um, uh, requirement here to have a consultation. Um, I've requested a meeting with the general manager um, today. Uh, I've been in contact with the office through my own office uh, here in Drogheda, and I hope to have that meeting very, very shortly. And express to the general manager and the senior staff uh, the concerns that the people of Drogheda have. Uh, this isn't just a matter, uh, as Martin correctly points out, for the staff at the Lord's Hospital. There needs to be uh, a wider consultation uh, and uh, the views of the people of Drogheda and a wider area need to be considered uh, by the hospital as well. So I'm appealing to the hospital manager to uh, review this, uh, to stop this in its tracks at this point in time. Let's have a wider discussion. There's no urgency for this whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I'm still, for example, Michael, waiting for very clear answers as to why um, the uh, new x-ray room proposed for mm-hmm. the extension of the hospital has been blocked. Okay. That's the priority, supporting the staff and the hospital's okay. priority. Well, there's a lot uh, of interest this. in this. We leave it there for the moment. I'm sure we'll be hearing more. Thank you both indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Martin Walsh, uh, who is a chairperson of uh, the National Health Division of FORSA, and uh, Senator Gerald Nash of the Labour Party. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Time now, as is usual around this time on a Friday, for our review of uh, the contributions made in Leinster House this week by TDs and senators from counties Louth and Meath. The report is brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Here's our parliamentary correspondent, Ken Murray. Hello again, and welcome to this week's edition of the Louth me the Rockless Report. We begin a roundup this week with a contribution made in the Dáil on Wednesday. The publication of a legal document by the British government which implicates cross-border activity was raised by Fianna Fáil TD Declan Brannock. He asked on Taoiseach Leo Varadkar if the Irish dimension of the document will be published shortly. Taoiseach, as expected, the UK Attorney General's legal advice has been issued I think an equally important document that was prepared by the EU and UK in relation to over 150 issues pertaining to a mapping exercises 
that concerned uh, cross-border cooperation and the implications for the Good Friday Agreement. You are on record of saying you would like to see it published, or many others. Do you not feel, Taoiseach, that it is now important in the interest of transparency and clarity that those 150 issues uh, that are pertinent, particularly to the people in the border community and the area I represent, be published in the interest of bringing clarity to the situation? I too would be happy to see that uh, document published. I, I actually had thought it was published uh, as an annex to the uh, withdrawal agreement. Perhaps it hasn't been, so I'll double-check that. Um, it is a UK-EU paper, so it's not in our gift to publish it, but I, I would see absolutely no reason why it shouldn't be published, and that information should also be available uh, to people in this House uh, and to the House of Commons as well, uh, demonstrating the extent to which North-South cooperation and daily life between uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland is, is underpinned by European law. The proposed abortion legislation was discussed in the Dáil during the week and one suggested amendment would see pregnant women provide personal details on their ethnicity and marital status. Although rejected by Health Minister Simon Harris, independent TD for Me the West, Pather Tobin, told the Dáil that such details would assist authorities in forming an opinion on what types of women will seek abortions. The sample that I would, I would look to is, is in Britain where you know, a four-page document is collected by the doctors who are involved with the provision of the, of the abortion and that information is then used for research, for policy development and for people to understand exactly what's happening within the system so that elected reps can then develop legislation in future so as to address some of the issues that are found uh, from that research. So, for example, within the 8th Committee, we found out that one of the major reasons, the majority reason for abortion was socioeconomic reasons. Uh, And when you collect information with regards to people's socioeconomic situation, it allows you to understand exactly the people who are affected most socioeconomically with regards to abortion. But if you don't collect that information, well, therefore, it is much harder to focus resources that would be necessary to alleviate some of those socioeconomic reasons as well. In advance of the vote, independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick called on Minister Simon Harris to ensure that doctors have the legal right to opt out of providing abortions if they so wish. Recent decisions in the United Kingdom and Norway saw the strong ruling in favour of the rights of healthcare professions to refuse participating in abortions. The very notion that GPs should be forced to provide abortion services in their practice is reprehensible. Why can we not operate an opt-in system as is in the case of New Zealand? By this method, the 25% of so GPs who want to provide the service can do so. This will, this will surely give enough coverage in each county for the services to be carried out. The National Association of General Practitioners has already called for such an opt-in system and has said that the provision of abortion should not become a standard part of GP practice. But the Minister and the Government seem to want to ignore both of these positions. We operate an opt-in system for GPs in other areas. For example, GPs can choose to opt-in or out of the medical card scheme. 1.6 million people have medical cards in this country, and yet GP practice can opt in operate of the services. Fianna Fáil TD from Me East, Thomas Byrne, told the Dáil that he is satisfied that the bill ensures that members of the medical profession are not obliged to assist in abortion operations if that is their personal preference. No doctor, student doctor, nurse, uh, midwife, and the minister says pharmacist, will be required to take part in any of the provisions of the Act. They won't have to take part in any abortion. And I think that's getting lost. And I think that is something that is worth fighting for and it's something that should be acknowledged.
and said, this is not something that will apply to any professional that I've mentioned who, who, who doesn't wish to take part in it. That's absolutely the case, absolutely clear. It's absolutely clear to me. And I'm very satisfied with the provisions for conscientious objection in this bill, that they are broad-based. A call was made on the government this week by Sinn Féin to honour the UN Charter on the Rights of People with Disabilities. Gerry Adams told the Dáil on Tuesday that the failure to implement the Charter has left people with disabilities living like prisoners. Alan Dunn, Disability Federation of Ireland, and Joan Carthy, Irish Wheelchair Association, told us that without adequate services, citizens living with disabilities are like prisoners. In Louth, I work with many groups and individuals who advocate for services for people with disabilities. Groups like the Parents and Friends of the Intellectually Disabled, Louth Respite Group, Walk, Peer and others. And I commend them all. They fight a battle a day with success of governments over the lack of funding, the lack of planning and the lack of resources. This is totally contrary to the Convention. It took 11 years for the government to ratify the UN Convention. That, a Cahillac, is not good enough. Next May, voters in cities around the country will vote in regional plebiscites to determine whether or not they can elect local mayors. Fianna Fáilte D from Meath West, Shane Castles, told the Dáil on Tuesday that elected mayors will be good for local democracy. And I look forward to the day when large urban towns, such as my own town of Navan, where I was privileged to be the mayor, or Trim, or indeed my neighbouring counties of, of Louth, with Drogheda and Dundalk, these big towns would have directly elected mayors also. And not for a person to simply have the title or the gold chain or to go to openings, uh, but what genuinely is to be welcomed about the, uh, the proposal in respect of the career looks, is that the plebiscite poses the question as to whether or not certain functions of the chief executives of those local authorities uh, should be transferred to those career looks. And I know, Minister, you've spoken about this before, and I hope it's embraced. I hope that it's real uh, change, uh, and I hope that it's endorsed, and that we will see responsibility, and that those that would attain that responsibility recognise then that they are answerable to the people in a real and meaningful way. The withdrawal of versatile pain relief patches was raised in the Dáil on Tuesday. Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster sought clarity on the matter from Antishok Leo Varadkar. What plans do you or your government have to reverse the decision you made to withdraw versatile pain relief patches for people on medical cards and the drugs payment scheme. You're probably aware that the chairman of the National Association of GPs had said that the system you had introduced had seen almost all of GP applications on behalf of their patients turned down. Tishok, I have a constituent who's almost 70 years of age, has a medical card, is doubled in two with chronic pain daily. He can now, he's now confined to his home because he cannot afford to buy those pain relief patches that he needs. Taoiseach, will you listen to the medical professionals and the patients and reverse this cruel cost-cutting measure so that people who live daily in chronic pain can ensure that they have some sort of quality of life? Thank you, Deputy Taoiseach, to conclude. Thank you, that's, that's, um, that's, that's not, not a government decision, uh, and the medic- Medicines Management Programme is run by uh, a professor, um, professor of medicine, in fact, uh, so th- there are medical professionals um, helping to make these decisions, and it is important that if any medicine is being prescribed by doctors off-licence, 
uh, that there are some controls uh, on how that is done. The closure of the Grafton English Language College in Dublin during the week was highlighted in the Shannon on Wednesday. Labour Senator Jed Nash told the House that it was similar to the closure of authentic foods in Dundalk and accused the government of not properly implementing the law in this area. We've had a situation in Dundalk in recent weeks where the authentic food company closed down overnight, leaving uh, workers uh, on the hook and leaving the state on the hook in terms of the uh, requirement to pay statutory redundancy. There are elements of company that can be used to pursue errant directors who are involved in these types of situations. And one of those particular sections, as you know, Minister, remains untested, and that's Section 599 of the Companies Act, where, in effect, the state or any other creditor, indeed, can go after the assets of directors of a company, their related assets, to uh, try to ensure uh, that monies owed to the state are are, are recovered. And that was something that the Duffy Cattle Report focused on very, very clearly and very, very methodically, because that's an element of Irish company law that, in fact, has been around since 1991. Uh, Desmond O'Malley introduced it and has yet to be tested. That should be enforced to the nth degree, at least to dissuade people who may be considering tactical insolvencies of this nature to stop them in their tracks. And that contribution by Labour Senator Jed Nash concludes our Loud Me the Oireachtas summary for this week. So until next time, this is Ken Murray for the Houses of the Oireachtas Weekly Report. Thanks, Ken. And Ken Murray should have another Loud Me the Oireachtas report for us in around the same time on next Friday's programme. The reports are brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. At times, Fianna Fáil TDs are left to judge uh, the political direction of their party by the mood of their leader rather than by anything he says. Uh, that's uh, according to Fiac Kelly. Fiac is uh, the deputy political editor with uh, the Irish Times and joins us now. And good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us as always. Uh, you make your comments in an analysis piece in the Irish Times today in the context of the supply confidence and supply agreement, uh, the review of that coming to a conclusion. And I suppose only Michal Martin knows what's in his head, but you've been talking to senior Fianna Fáil TDs and you're reporting this morning that there's a lightness to Michal Martin's mood. Yeah, Michael, what, 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 what people are striking a parallel with in Fianna Fáil is that if you cast your mind back to 2016 and those painstaking negotiations between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to get this government up and running, that TDs at the time detected Michal Martin's mood lift about two or three weeks before that process came to its conclusion and they read it as him having made up his mind about what he wanted to do which was to facilitate Fine Gael in government and that he was happy with his choice. Now they look upon the, their leader as everybody does to their boss day after day and wonder what, what what's he thinking, what's, he, what's his strategy and the same TDs in the recent uh, weeks have detected a similar mood from Michal Martin that he is in very good form around the place, he's chatting to people and they say he looks like a man who's made up his mind about extending this confidence and supply agreement and he's just working his way towards announcing that strategy. We've had a long run in to this uh, these talks, like these talks have been going on since after the budget in October the 9th. Um, there has been talk about extending the confidence supply deal since the summer and beforehand. So it's been kind of let perlicate down the Fianna Fáil organisation that this is something that Michal Martin may do. Now, the talks with Fianna, between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have initially focused on a retrospective review of the government to date before they went to renegotiation phase. Now, our understanding is that review phase is largely done. There may be an extra session next week on Brexit policy, but it's largely done. And we're anticipating some sort of announcement from Michal Martin in the next week or so. And... I gather there'll be some opposition to that announcement from frontbench Fianna Fáil TDs. 
Well, there is private opposition being expressed to it. You hear grumbling from the likes of senior spokespeople like Barry Cowan, Billy Kelleher, Jim O'Callaghan, etc. But I think Micheál Martin's strength in the party is such that he will be able to carry the day if he decides that this is what he wants to do. He will inform his par- front bench and his parliamentary party that this is what he wants and they will largely go along with it. Uh, it is hard to see open rebellion uh, on this issue, although you might see some private grumbling. They do trust his political judgment. His political judgment has been correct heretofore on the big cause, like, say, for example, the referendum on the Eighth Amendment. He was seen to be more in tune with public view than his party, largely. So I think there's a lot of trust in what he does. It's just a matter of how he brings his organisation around to this point of view. Like TDs say, they are, at the moment running local election conventions all around the country and the membership does not like this idea of keeping Fine Gael propped up for any longer than they have to and would like to an election straight away. Mm. Michael Martin on the radio last week is very interesting. He acknowledged that while some people in the membership and the parliamentary party would like an election, would like to be in government in short order, he says you have to think of the bigger picture. And it seems that bigger picture he has in mind is saying that for the national interest and with such uncertainty around Brexit, perhaps we should commit to one more budget. Again, we don't yet know, but all the tea leaves are pointing in that direction, if I can mangle metaphors in that way. Mm. Uh, and if that's what he, he's going to be saying publicly to justify what some would call the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael government, uh, what is he saying or thinking privately? Uh, is he looking at the opinion polls? Yeah, I think that the people in his party say that they... The view amongst some of the front bench is that he's looking at private polling that all political parties carry out at constituency level and national level, and that he feels that now is not the right time to go to the country. They say, look, Neil Martin has one more shot at being Taoiseach. He's the next election. He has to beat Leo Varadkar, not necessarily in terms of seat numbers. He has to build the government before Leo Varadkar can and that he is not going to strike until he feels the moment is opportune. Now, I think that Michal Martin is consistently out indoors in Dublin and elsewhere around the country, and he, he, he would see himself as having a fair idea of where the public is at. And I think the view he would have is that if he gives Leo Varadkar more time, he will have more time, that Michal Martin will have more time to catch up with his popularity. He, the novelty of Leo Varadkar will wear off, his popularity might dip, and he will be... I suppose, more vulnerable a year or a year and a bit from now than he is now. That's the Fianna Fáil thinking. Mm-hmm. Fianna Gael thinking is, well, he hasn't dipped so far. He's been in power for at least 18 months or, or, or going on nearly 18 months now. And we've maintained steady. So I think Michal Martin's shot and judgment is that he's going to hang on in there and hopeful that Farragher's popularity wanes. And no hope of a, a spring election as far as Michal Martin is concerned. Uh, what might Leo Varadkar think of that, Fiuk? Well, Interesting the other day, Michael, I thought, was the government uh, scheduling two referendums for the same day as the local and European elections next spring, as well as plebiscites around the country in a number of urban areas and whether there should be directly elected mayors. Now, we know Brexit is going to kick in from the end of March, so there's a period between April and May when you could have an election, but I think that's unlikely. And when I saw the government schedule those referendums, I thought that was Varadkar moving a early uh, election next year off the table as well because you can't confuse people by asking to go to the polls again and again and again. They could be going into their polling booth with an A4 pad under their their, uh, their arm if they were being asked to vote on a general election the same day as the local and Europeans. So I think the smart money would be on maybe at the earliest an election next September or October, possibly even as 2020. Very good. We leave it there and many thanks for joining us. Great to talk to you again. Fia Kelly, Deputy Political Editor with the Irish Times, bring our, brings our programme to its conclusion today and for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. 
The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.